0: Hello, and welcome to the Calvary Chapel Southeast podcast. Thank you for joining us for our study through the book of Jude. We live in a world that is against the ways of Jesus. It seems that everywhere we look, the truth of God's word is under attack, even within the church. We as believers are called not to cower in the face of these attacks, but to boldly proclaim what is true and defend what is right. And this is what the book of Jude is all about. Grab your Bibles and let's jump in. grab your Bibles with me, turn to Jude. Jude. Again, if you have not been with us, if you don't know where Jude is, go to Revelation, the last book of the Bible, turn left, and it's right there next to it. I think it's really greatly placed, too. I love this message. We're going to finally come to the conclusion of our study in in, uh, Jude this morning, picking up at verse 17. Verse 17. Jude continues here. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. And these are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, Praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ through eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. That doesn't mean the service is over. (laughs) You may be seated. That's a phrase we've heard many times here. I read an interesting article a couple of weeks ago, and I felt led to kind of share it with you. It says it's, it's, it's captured as communism seeks to corrupt churches to bring down America. And it says this, that communism is an evil religion seeking to undermine U.S. society, according to the anti-communist activist and researcher Trevor Ludin. Uh, this is because Satan's mission is to overturn three institutions bestowed by God to govern humankind, family, church, and the civil government. It is the revolution of overthrowing those godly institutions and replacing them with satanic communist institutions. Speaking in his new film, the Enemies Within the Church, the communism experts said that socialists figured out how to bring down the United States from within after conducting a 10-year study. Through this research, they realized that it wasn't the military nor the political system that bolstered the United States, but religion. They think it's the religion, it's Christianity that's the strength, the moral strength of America, and it is the Christian ethic that has made America as great and strong as it is. Now, that finding led to their decision to focus on infiltrating the churches across the country to get inside and weaken them. And through this, they could achieve the ultimate goal of subverting religion, according to Ludin. Communism seeks to destroy people's faith in God and suppress people who believe in God. They have to they have to do that in order to replace that with their form of God, which is government. And consequently, people who seek guidance in the civil government rather than God or in religion. And this is the strategy. Communism is is to communism work to spread their propaganda from inside churches. This propaganda is being deliberately pumped into the churches, especially into Bible colleges that are training new level of pastors. The young pastors are pumping this into the young kids to turn churches into socialists. He said this in his movie, Enemies Within the Church, seeks to help people differentiate between real Christianity and counterfeit uh, communist, communist Christianity, and with this awareness that the tide may turn. He says, we need to bring the backbone of this country back to save this country, he said, because if we lose the church, we lose the country. If we lose America, we lose freedom all over the world. And I found that really interesting to hear the perspective of that from communism, because I don't think the gospel is all about saving America as much as it is about the gospel really transforming our lives. But I found it interesting that communism seeks to gain a foothold on the world through the perversion of the church and that Satan typically chooses to use the world to get on a foothold on the church within. So you have one force that is wanting to use the church to kind of gain entrance and have a force within the world. Meanwhile, Satan is always using the world to get his hands upon us within the church. As we said in our study, that as we began our study in Jude, that ever since the beginning of, church, of the church whenever wherever the purity of the gospel has gone out with power, that the enemy of truth is certain to follow with corruption and perversion and deception. That, we know, is a certainty. And this is what was happening in the church, and this is what Jude was so burdened about as he wrote this letter, that there were apostates who had themselves turned away from the truth and had infiltrated, crept into the church as undercover agents of Satan, and they were actively seeking to seduce and lead other true believers away from the faith that had saved them. They were teaching that the grace of Christ that saves us from sin now allows us the freedom to sin freely while pursuing our fleshly passions and desires. They were trying to normalize sexual immorality within the church much like we see taking place everywhere, I think in our country, even among many churches in our day, through immorality. Not only were they deceived themselves, they were actively seeking to deceive other believers who had been delivered from sin and the burden of sin back into the sin that they were delivered from. And so he gave the key exhortation of the book in verse three where he says that you believer that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, when Jude wrote this book, he wasn't writing simply so that we would be aware of apostasy, but that we would know how to respond to apostasy, that we would be actively diligent and willing to fight for, to stand up and defend the truth of God in anything that does not align with the truth of God. Now, I personally believe that Jude's warning is just as potent and important for us today even as it was for that church, but even more so because again, I believe we're in the midst of a great apostasy. I think there's something happening in the world today you cannot deny there is a force of evil that is working very hard. We're in a spiritual battle and Satan's on the war path against the truth and deceptions of every kind are his arsenal. And it is grieving to see how fast this deception is moving and spreading. Jude emphasized the fact that these apostates were those who long beforehand had been marked out for condemnation. They were corrupt deceivers, manipulators. They were themselves condemned to suffer the righteous judgment of God. They were on the road to destruction, destined for the holy righteous judgments to come, and they were attempting to bring others along with them. They were as we saw, they were the voice of the 10 spies in the wilderness who provoked the Israelites to fear and unbelief and disobedience, and as a result, led a whole generation to perish in the wilderness without experiencing the, the blessings and promises of God. Their destiny, destiny was like that of the fallen angels who abandoned their proper abode, and as a result are now locked away in, chown, in chains awaiting their fearful judgment to come. Their judgment would be like that of the Sodom and Gomorrah, who were given over to their own lust-filled passions and sexual perversions, but ultimately they suffered the wrath of God as God destroys the cities with fire and brimstone. He called them dreamers, deluded by their own proud imaginations and vain pride. He said they were irreverent, without fear of God, and ungodly. They are rebellious. They have not submitted to either God or to man. They make themselves out to be their own authority." They are greedy, self-seeking, using others as a means to their own ends. They are immoral, unholy, without moral conviction. They are like animals who are driven by their natural instincts and their fleshly lust. They are deceivers and liars and distorters. And like Cain, who sought to, to come to God on his own terms, these ones are captives of their own dead, stale, lifeless, worthless religion. And like Balaam, the prophet for hire, these ones are hirelings who sell, sell their soul out for their own greed and lust at the expense of others. And like Korah, who led a rebellion against Moses, so too they have challenged the authority of God over the lives of believers. They are hidden reefs, he said, seeking to shipwreck the faith of some. They're like the clouds without water. They look promising, but they offer you nothing. They leave you parched. They leave you dry. They're like fruitless autumn trees. They produce nothing of value. They are twice dead, both physically and spiritually. They're like wild waves of the seas, of the waters. We said they're not a bridge over troubled water. They are the troubled water. They're like the wandering stars, a flash in a plan. They come out of nowhere, and for a brief moment, you see them, but then they're gone, and they pass out into nowhere. They're grumblers, they're complainers, they're fault finders. They speak arrogantly. They flatter people and take advantage of them. And they're on the highway to hell, and they're willing to take anyone along with them who will join in with them. Now again, people, the relevancy of this for me, and I'm so glad that the Lord led us to come to this book, because I feel passionate as I watch what's going on in the world. Again, I believe that we are smack dab right now in the middle of the greatest apostasy of all the ages. And there are people everywhere who once identified themselves as Christians who are now actively deconstructing their faith. Even men of, of, uh, uh, that are known, big men, people that have had an influence upon the church, they're turning away from the faith that they once held to. Now, I wanna say this is that we are all susceptible to deception. In fact, I would say that most of us could say we have been deceived many, many, many times, even as Christians. You see, Satan speaks lies to us every day. The Bible says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses us before God day and night. But he also accuses me before you and he accuses you before me. He's told me all kinds of nasty things about some of you this morning. Do you want to know what it is? I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) But but it comes to the question, okay, I see the problem. This is a big problem. So what are we going to do? I mean, how in the world are we going to stand up in this present age of deception? How how are we going to do this? How are we going to avoid being deceived in this day? Can we truly believe that we're stumbling into error? Or can we avoid being struggling? Struggling and, and moving into error, and how can we stay the course? One of the things I remember about my pastor over the many years, we would have these pastor conferences, and he would always exhort us all the time. He says, Guys, just stay the course. Stay the course. Stay the course. Every time we got together, I knew I was going to hear it again. Guys, stay the course. Keep focus. And so as we come to this final section here, Jude gives application as to how we as believers can stay the course, even in our day of apostasy. He says in verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and what they were saying to you, that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. Notice he says here, but you. In contrast to those apostate deceivers, he's speaking to you who are beloved of God. And while we know that God loves all, and he sent his son for all, it is really only the true believer who experiences the love of God. It's only us who can really even understand what it means to be loved by God. I hope that you know that experience. That you can know this morning that you're loved by him. But this is his encouragement. I want you to remember that the words that were spoken to you by Christ and his apostles. Remember. What a great word. I know I'm getting older, remembering isn't as easy as it used to be. But I see how important remembering is in my life. Because as you go through scripture, you cannot help but realize That God's intent is that his people remember those things, those key lessons in life, these stones of remembrance by which he never wants us to forget. Things that we are to hold on to. These are markers of remembrance. All the way through the Bible. In fact, later on this morning, we're going to have communion. Jesus said, this is, I want you to remember I never want you to forget. I want you to come back again and again and again. I want you to come back and remember, in remembrance of me, that you would eat of this bread and drink of this cup and know what I've done for you. Remember. Remember this, that the devil's objective is to get us to forget what we ought to remember and remember what we ought to forget. He loves to remind us of all of our failures and all the things that we screw up on. He loves to remind us, but he loves to have us forget about the key and most important things of what Christ has done for us. He says, I want you to remember what the apostles said, that in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Now, Jesus, we know, clearly warned in Matthew 7:15 when he said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He said, you will know them by their fruit. Mark 13:22 for false Christ and false prophets will arise, and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I told you everything in advance. The Apostle Paul, again, we shared this before, but I want to read it again. Acts chapter 20, where he meets with the Ephesian elders. He gives them their final instructions, but he pours out his burden with them when he says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, always be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And thus, Jesus, I want you to remember, I think of Paul's words to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 1, he says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Peter says it like this in 2 Peter chapter two, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master, who brought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Peter again says in 2 Peter 3.3, know this first of all, that in the last days, that mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust." John warned of it in his day, that there were many antichrists already at work. And so he gives his admonition in 1 John 4, 1, where he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so Jude says, I want you to remember. I want you to remember all the, the instructions, the warnings that you were given concerning these things, You see, I believe really the weakness in our day is that many professing believers are not taught enough to know what to remember. They're not even knowing what to remember. Nor are they being taught the warnings of Scripture instead of Bible studies. No, what they're given is social gospels, health and wealth gospels, and success gospels, pop psychology gospels with little little feel-good ditties designed to make you feed or feed your pride and to kind of build you up in your own self-esteem, anything but the gospel. But this is what Jude is saying is to us as believers, I believe, that we should expect false teachers and deceptions even within the church, that we should see it, that we should also be prepared for apostasy. It's not something of just knowing it's there, but we should be prepared in how to deal with it because we've been clearly warned of it. It was true in the early church. It's true today. And therefore, we must never be surprised that there are so many demonic forces out there actively seeking to undermine the truth, people. There's forces at work to cause you to doubt and to disbelieve the word that God has given to you. Now, he says in verse 19, these are the ones who cause divisions, now referring back to the apostates. They're worldly minded, they are devoid of the spirit. These false teachers who reject the truth are devoid of the spirit. Therefore, they are incapable of understanding the message of truth. These are the ones, he says, who are causing divisions within the body. Now, instead of unity that is centered on Christ and on the truth that he's given to us, they teaching things that are outside of that truth, thus they cause divisions because they're worldly-minded and devoid of the truth. And because of that, and because they're worldly-minded and devoid of the truth, they're not spiritually-minded. But Romans 8, 5 says, for those who are according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. And Romans 8, 7, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. You cannot even do it when your heart is on the flesh. So we should never seek here spiritual unity with those who are not spiritual-minded, for those who are devoid of the Spirit, who pervert the truth. There can be no unity. There is no place for that in the body of Christ. The truth of Jesus was never meant to be compromised. And by people, by the way, that's why I am not ecumenical. That is why I have no desire to be a part of the World Council of Churches. Because I see where they are as a group collectively. And I know that we can never align ourselves spiritually with those who are not spiritual. With those who don't have the mind. Who have no reverence for God's word and his authority over our life. But it is interesting how many in those ecumenical liberal groups will often chastise and accuse us who are evangelical Bible-teaching churches and pastors and say, well, you guys are just so narrow-minded and you're just so divisive. When in truth, they're the divisive ones. They have divided themselves because of their error. True fellowship, people, is based in the unity of truth, not in compromise of doctrines and deceptions. Now, Jesus said it very clearly in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. He said, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. That sword, he says, is going to divide between truth and error. And so we see that there. Now, this doesn't mean that as Christians, we're going to all believe exactly alike on all the doctrines that are there. Hope you understand that. We are a bunch of different people. We have different ways of looking at certain things. And so there's room for disagreement within the the non-essential doctrines of the Bible. But we have those things that we know should be essential that we have to hold on to. I think the deity of Christ or the virgin birth or the infallibility of the authority of Scripture or even the resurrection of Jesus and the bodily resurrection of Christ. So the principle is this, and I've heard it said, that in an essential unity and non essentials liberty and all things charity. So then he says, how are we going to then stay the course? Verse 20, but you, beloved... Building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. This is what you got to do. You got to build yourself up in the most holy faith. Well, how do we do that? Well, we do it the same way the early church did it. Back here in Acts 2, verse 42, it says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Look at those four things there. Is this what you do? Is you continually devote yourselves to the teaching of God's word. That you fellowship with other believers, that's essential. That you break the bread together. And I think that's more than simply eating. I think it's, he's speaking in reference to communion, where we come together and we often remember, as Jesus said, do this as often as you will in remembrance of me. And then, of course, we pray. But you know what? You have to first learn the truth and know the truth before you can stand up and fight for the truth. You have to know it. You have to make up your mind. And I've been saying this these last weeks is that you have to really settle in your heart the value of the Word of God in your life and the authority that it's going to have over your life. You see, Peter says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. He's speaking of the spiritual lead. He has given us everything that we need. He's given us the Holy Spirit who aids us and instructs us as we're going through the word. He enlightens us to understand it. You guys know the experience. You're reading something and go, oh, man, I never saw this before. Wow, I didn't understand that. I can't believe that's right here in the Bible. Well, it's the Holy Spirit. He's illuminating truth to your heart. And by the way, you should seek to learn the whole counsel of God's word, not just the parts that you like or you're comfortable with. You know, at times there's things in the Holy Scriptures that leave us uncomfortable, that leave us unsettled, they step on our toes. But God has given it for that purpose so that we might be provoked to do what is true. We should seek to learn God's word contextually and the context of which it is written. Remember that when Satan came against Jesus in the wilderness that he used scripture to do so, but he used scripture out of context. Jesus' response to Satan was to speak back with the scripture in the context of its truth because false teachers always come along with partial truths that make you say, well, they sound so good. I often watch some of these guys on TV. I tell you last week I get really frustrated when I do. And sometimes my wife has to turn off the TV for me. But but I can listen to him. and I go, man, that's not bad. You know, I'm going along for a few minutes. That sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty solid. And all of a sudden, you got to be aware. You have to really watch out. You have to be like the Bereans in Acts 17. Who were commended because they didn't just hear Paul's message. They checked it out. It says in Acts 17, 11, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Listen, I hope you know that I never would feel bad about you going and checking things out that I teach you. In fact, I encourage you. You need to check it out. You need to see and examine it for yourself. And if you hear me or anybody else depart from this word, you run and you get away. Secondly, he says, praying in the spirit. Now, I know a lot here may be thinking that he's saying speaking in tongues, but that might be part of it. But there's so much more. Praying in the Holy Spirit simply is praying in the power and the wisdom of the Spirit. It is spirit led prayer. He's saying that we're to to pray spiritual prayers, not carnal prayers. Praying with spiritual minds rather than carnal minds. Now, we often, what we do is we reduce prayer to simply coming to God. Well, God, I want this, I want that, and do this and do that. We kind of give Him our list of things that we want to do, but prayer is so much more. It's to be spiritual. That's why when you begin prayer, as Jesus said, you begin with worship. You begin by just coming before the Lord and acknowledging who he is so that you can get your mind straight enough to know what you should even pray for. But you have to have a spiritual heart and a spiritual mind to seek that which is spiritual, to come before the Lord. It simply means that we pray by means of the Holy Spirit and utter dependence of the Spirit. Praying in the Spirit is prayer that is Spirit-born and Spirit-led. Now, Paul says in Romans 8, 26, he says in the same way, he says, "'The Spirit also helps our weaknesses, "'for we do not know how to pray as we should, "'but the Spirit himself intercedes for us "'with groanings too deep for words.'" And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. I love that. It said that the Spirit is, is coming along with us and he is inspiring us. He intercedes for us. We don't even know what to pray for. Do you guys ever find that true? But the Holy Spirit, when you're in that place, it's like, you know what? You can trust the fact the Spirit is. He knows what, we're, what we need and what we're praying for. So we pray in agreement and submission to the will of the Spirit, Just as Jesus prayed in the garden when he was alone with him in those those final moments before the cross, and he said, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's prayer in the spirit. You see, prayer is not getting man's will done in heaven. It is getting God's will done on earth. And that's when we pray according. When you pray according to the flesh, all you're going to get is just flesh. Yuck. Who wants it? I like what James says. He says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Now, he assumes there that you're simply asking for money. Lord, just give me some more money. Is that You guys prayed that this morning, anybody? <laughs> give me some more money. He said, listen, listen, you've got to pray with a spiritual heart, with the mind of the Spirit, with the mind of the Holy Spirit and what you are seeking from the Lord. He says in verse 21 Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keep yourself in the love of God. There's an old, old saying that says that if you feel far from God, guess who moved? It is never God who moves from us, it is us. We move away from Him. What is it that keeps us from the love of God? Well, it's our sin. It's our pride. Sin breaks fellowship and communion with God. And so what you have to do is be quick to repent. It means that you keep your life open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit so that when you do sin, you're quick to repent and turn back to God in faith, cleansing yourself. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if we confess our sins, I love this. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I love that. We have to be committed to obeying God's word. What is it keeps us in his love? Well, obedience to him. Jesus says in John 15, 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so Jesus actually says in, in John chapter 15, abide in Christ, abide in me. Jesus is the vine we're the branches and it is only by that abiding relationship that we're ever going to bear the fruit of righteousness in our lives. We are to continually draw near to Christ. James 4, 8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. That means that you're at a place in your life where you say, Lord, regularly, I'm going to come. Lord, I know you want me to draw near to you. And so today, I just want to know what your heart is for me. I wonder how many of us pray like that. Lord, what is your heart for me? I want to come before you, God. I want to gain your mind and how you see me. And we're to stand secure in the love of Christ for us. Romans 8, verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Man, can you chew on that? Nothing. Nothing he's there, we have to understand. And notice what he says next. Wait anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus to eternal life. Wait anxiously for the promise of eternal life. And I think, we think, you know, wait patiently. Doesn't that sound better, wait patiently? He says, no, wait anxiously with excitement, with expectancy with certainty that his promise is going to be for you in that day to come. That's the hope. We have this glorious eternal future that God has prepared for us. Keep your eyes on the prize. Colossians 3 verse 1 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is now hidden in Christ. You know, there's some people who often say to us, well, you know what, you're just so heavenly minded, you know, earthly good. I'm not sure I think that's possible. What I do think, I think we can be very earthly minded, we're no heavenly good. And so we have to set our mind on things above. We wait anxiously, expectantly, Joyfully for the inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus. And fifthly, he says here that we're to then watch out for one another. That I have to watch out for you, and you're going to have to watch out for me. This is the body relationship. Notice what he says in verse 22. Have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. He says, not only are we to make sure that we're staying our course, we want to help others in staying their course. But I have to look for you and see where you are and help you. Jesus said in John 15, 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Now here, he actually gives three groups of people in our response how we're to meet with them. Look at verse 22, and have mercy on some who are doubting. He's saying, be merciful to those who are doubting. Not harsh, not condemning. When we see others who are struggling with their faith and they're working through their doubts, rather than that, we are to be encouragers, helping strengthen their faith and helping them overcome their doubting. Now, again, we have all times, we struggled with doubt. I would imagine already today, a number of you have already struggled with doubt in your life. Our faith is challenged continually. But what he's saying is that we have to be patient with one another and the growth of one another so that instead of being discouraging and being too critical or judgmental because of their doubts, that we are merciful and compassionate with them Seeking to gently and lovingly encourage them in the faith, lest we push them farther away from the Lord. Do you guys hear that? Is that we are considering one another and saying, I'm not gonna be harsh on you, I'm gonna walk with you through your doubts. I know we all have them, I have them, but I know that we have to overcome them through faith. And that's where we begin to build each other up. The rule is this, that we are to be as merciful and as gracious to others with their struggles and their doubts as God has been with us in our struggles and our doubts. And I don't know about you, but that's a lot of mercy. That's a lot of grace right there. What he's saying is that we should be paramedics. We should be those who come alongside others in their need rather than the police. I know some of us, we like to be the police. Oh, I saw you. Oh, you dirty thing, you. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is this. He is the paraclete. He is the helper. He comes alongside of us in our time of need. He's our advocate. And so we should be for one another. He ain't heavy, he's my brother. A lot of truth to that. He says, save others, in verse 23, snatching them out of the fire. Rescue those who are on the edge of danger. It seems like the second group he's talking about here of those who are kind of moving beyond just doubting. They're now kind of entering into the captivity of the evil one through teachings. And this means that you go after them and you rescue them rather than write them off as a lost cause. Oh, man, they're just lost. Forget it. We want to rescue them, snatch them out of the fire before they're inflamed by the fire. We go after them with passion and with love and through the power of the Holy Spirit, seeking to bring them back to the place. You see, we're not just to be paramedics for their doubting, but firemen. Who rescue those who are in the cusp of terrifying danger. We need to grab them, pull them away from before it's too late. You know, a lot of times we don't want to get involved with others who are in this bad place. And sometimes we don't want to talk to them or whatever, because for our own fear of our own rejection that they might give to us. I know that in my life over the years, my heart has been broken. Many, many times of those who once walked with the Lord, and I watched them walk away. I watched them walking right back into the sin that they were delivered from. And the Lord just said, you know what? Sometimes you just have to risk your friendship and do everything you can to rescue them. And I have to tell you, I've lost some friends, but others are closer than ever. Because when you love someone, you don't let them go. You keep praying, and you seek the Lord. You just don't say, Well, done with you. He says, and some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. These seem to be those who have stepped over the line in unbelief and are now walking completely in disobedience. They've departed from the truth and have now following after the ranks of the false teachers. They have bought the lie. I've seen a lot of these in the last few years. But notice here, even here, he says, have mercy on them. Why? Because it ain't over till it's over. Praying for them. I've seen so many caught up into this deception of journey, and some of them I have to go and say, well, listen, I want you to know something. You're heading in a very wrong, bad direction, but I want you to know when the day comes, if the day comes that God grabs all of your heart, you need to know that his arms are wide open for you and that my arms are going to be open for you too. Knowing that, having mercy on others doesn't mean that we accept what they're doing. You know, we can love others who have strayed away from the faith without embracing their sin. And unfortunately, in our day, far too often, in the name of love, we end up encouraging each other in their sins by thinking, I have to just go along with it. No, you don't. You don't have to go along with it. But you can love them. You can be a true and loving friend. Doesn't mean you have to accept their wrongdoing. Nor does it mean you should only say things that they want to hear. Sometimes the greatest act of love and compassion we can have with those who are going to stray is to speak the truth and love. And pray that somehow God through the Holy Spirit will do something with that. But he says you're to hate the sin, ensnared by those, ensnared by their sin. He says, when you reach out to others who have lost their way, be careful that you don't lose your own footing in the process. And when you're trying to save someone from drowning, that you don't drown yourself in the experience. That the principle that Jude is laying down here is that for those stronger believers must never think that they are beyond satanic influence even while serving the Lord and seeking to rescue others, we can become defiled. But lastly, and I include the benediction here or the doxology, because I think this is probably for me more precious to me than anything, where he says in verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God, our savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. I like that. You know, I used to think years ago that I better hold on, I better hold on. If I don't hold on, I'm gonna live. I'm gonna fall and he's gonna let me go. And what I've realized over the years is the wonderful truth is that he's always been holding on to me. He's holding on to me. He's the one who keeps me. He loves us. He's he's not going to just let us go. Hebrews 13, 5 says, For he himself said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so we can say confidently, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? You know when you talk about all the apostasy and the deception and the judgment we have the most greatest assurance is that God is the one watching over us. I like that a lot. You know we can think well man it's all on me oh no. None of us go anywhere if he's not watching over us. And that's our hope that he is able to keep you from stumbling to make you stand in the presence of his glory with great joy. That's the kind of savior we have. You know, why do trapeze artists keep the safety net underneath? And why do rock climbers use ropes? And why do children use training wheels to a bike? It's gravity. The fear of falling, Jude says, God is able to keep us. From falling. What a promise. And then to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion. That means over everything. The King of kings and Lord of lords, all authority is His. And how long before all time and now and forever the enemy is subtle and the dangers are great but the only wise God our savior is the one who will keep us from stumbling and to make us stand in the presence of his glory with great joy and so I can say with Jude so be it amen stay the course believer believer We are in the day when everything is being challenged. You need to love this and hear what God has to say to you and stand strong. Stay the course. And trust in the power of God who is able to keep you from stumbling. And we can walk further and we can stand strong even in this day for that which is true. Thanks for listening to this week's study in the Book of Jude. If you're ever in the Portland area, we would love to have you join us for one of our services. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ccseportland.com. We hope you'll join us next week as we continue in our study together.